live. Now, because of the 30th anniversary commemoration all around the neighborhood where Mulligetta was murdered, there's actually memorial things on top of the street signs. So there's a signal to people that they can like note it and like, if they don't know, like, oh, now they can find out, which I think is really awesome. This was a hard story to find out about if you don't know the people. One of the things I'm really excited about this podcast existing is like, now you don't actually have to know Mike or have to know these people and then know their history to be able to ask them questions. This is one thing that happened in a wave of things that happened. So what was happening, Enrique, you've got the Mexican Latino history in Oregon tab, you know, what was happening with the native people in struggling for their rights. There's the whole thing with Emanuel Hospital, like check that out. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do to learn more about where we live and how the dominant culture of people in power look over people who aren't in power. If we know more about all of those struggles in the past, we can prevent harm from happening currently and help heal from harm that happened in the past. It's up to us to to know about this place that we live. That was Aaron Yankee, executive producer of the podcast. And now we'll hear from my co-host, Selena Flores. The idea of community and organizing in a broad sense creating like the in the podcast we hear about these you are listening to kboo portland 90.7 fm listener supported community radio kboo community radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of kboo in accordance with the requirements of the communications act of 1934 and certification requirements of the corporation for public broadcasting Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, board meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The KBOO Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month starting at 6 p.m., Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Did you know that KBOO is streaming live on the web? Well, you do now. Just type www.kboo.fm, click on Listen Live, and you've got us. Just another example of how KBOO 90.7 FM Portland works for you. It's your community radio. Hey, yo, this is Clipping. You're listening to KBOO. Welcome to Labor Radio on KBOO Portland. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gilland. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, quickly, before we get into our show, we would like to just uh, give a special thanks and shout out to the Labor Radio Podcast Network for hosting, for hosting podcasted versions of our show each month. Be sure to check that out at laborradionetwork.org. And before we get into our main topic today, we would also like to give a special Labor Radio congratulations to the nurses of Mount Sinai and Montefiore uh, Medical Center in New York for uh, reaching a tentative agreement in their uh, labor disputes, in their labor negotiations. So congratulations to New York nurses for that. Uh, and today, we you know our main topic, we're going to be examining a case that is currently in front of the Supreme Court that is likely to undermine uh, workers' right to strike and will almost certainly have frightening implications for American democracy as a whole. Uh, the case is Glacier Northwest Incorporated versus 
the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Local Union 174. Uh, and the dispute is about whether employers can sue unions for economic harm, including that caused by loss or of perishable products that results from workers going on strike. Uh, a ruling in favor of Glacier could potentially open the doors to lawsuits against unions anytime they strike, um, which would severely weaken the crucial and federally protected right to strike that is currently uh, granted to all workers in this country. Um, and such a ruling would undermine American democracy by harming the ability of working people throughout the economy to exercise collective power to counter the influence of wealthy corporations, and uh, that would then have dire implications for the health of our economy and the government uh, as it currently stands. Um, and so, I mean, as you can imagine, this case has drawn significant attention as a broad attack on the labor movement, um, right at a time you know now when workers nationwide are starting to organize unions and are you know the levels of striking around this country. Uh, have risen to, to, to levels that we have not seen in decades. Uh, there is a real fervor for for labor organizing and for striking, and uh, this would just put a huge damper on that, um, which, you know, as we're going to go into, is likely the case, like likely why this is being brought forward. Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously we'll dive into it, but take an example like the railroad system, yeah. and obviously that's covered under different things, but you can imagine there are, you know, private sector companies that deal with huge parts of the economy and how people get goods and services. So this has kind of far reaching implications. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, like we talked about last month, you know, the rail industry having a special set of rules that govern just that industry, you know, mm -hmm. and airlines and how they're basically undermining the ability of the right to strike there. This yeah. could basically spread that same idea to the rest of the economy, which would really have a chilling effect on the current uh, explosion in interest in, in the unions around the country. Um, and so, yeah, basically, like, the, the case itself is that, you know, at the center of this case is a strike um, that the Teamsters Local 174 uh, organized against Glacier Northwest, which is a concrete company that uh, operates in Seattle, Washington. Uh, and this strike took place back in 2017. And uh, drivers, you know, the drivers for that company, the unionized drivers, showed up to work on the day of the strike as normal. Um, and those with early routes had to fill their truck, or uh, yeah, had their trucks filled with cement and then went out to make deliveries. But after the final negotiations with the company broke down, the drivers were called back in to go on strike. Um, so those that were out on routes were told by the union to drive their trucks back to the company, you know, the, the, the garage, the lot, mm -hmm. and leave them running so that the cement wouldn't immediately harden. Uh, which the drivers all complied with. They all did that. Um, and unfortunately, management couldn't decant the cement or uh, make all the deliveries in time, and some of the cement hardened and had to be destroyed. Um, it was estimated by the company themselves that uh, that was a, you know, a, about $11,000 worth of cement was lost that day. But of course, you know, that was not necessarily due to the workers' actions. They left the trucks running so that the cement could be, you know, still worked with. It was management that could not deal with it and they weren't trained to deal with that and so they lost the cement. Um, now the strike itself lasted a week and afterward Glacier sued the Teamsters for intentional destruction of company property. Um, now, you know, as, as you know, you might expect, the case was dismissed by the Washington State Court um, which said that the dispute should first be heard by the National Labor Relations Board or NLRB. 
Uh, Glacier, of course, appealed this decision. Uh, the company argued that it could skip NL NLRB review and the critical worker protections and labor expertise the board provides uh, because, as it alleged, the strikers had inflicted, intent, you know, quote, intentional property damage uh, that placed its actions outside of the scope of the NLRB. Um, and this is how the case landed at the Supreme Court, as it is now. Um, you know, so simply getting to the Supreme Court, this, this case making its way to the Supreme Court, is already in and of itself a significant victory for glacier management and really anti-union bosses everywhere. Um, and it could have a chilling effect on the ability of workers to strike around this country. Um, now, you know, unlike, say, abortion rights, the right to strike is protected under federal law, specifically under the National Labor Relations Act, or the NLRA. Uh, that law normally supersedes, or preempts, as lawyers like to say, state tort claims like the one filed by Glacier. Uh, but there are edge cases. Um, the law requires striking employees to take, quote, reasonable precautions to make sure that their employer's property is not damaged, and the law clearly prohibits striking employees from taking active measures to damage or vandalize property. Uh, for example, like a striking Amazon driver couldn't drive their truck into the middle of Pioneer Square and shout, you know, free gifts from, from Uncle Bezos and then walk away and leave the truck there for anyone to, to access and vandalize and steal. Um, but a striking driver could refuse to make deliveries and if those packages contain perishable, uh, perishables that spoiled, uh, the strikers wouldn't be liable under the NLRA, even if management wanted to lodge a, a state tort claim against them. You know, so there's a difference there between intentionally damaging or, or hurting, you know, vandalizing property of the company and simply operating in a field where, like, yeah, if these, if these vegetables... If, if, timed, yeah. if timed actions of the day-to-day -day job, uh, you know, can cause stuff like this, then it's typically covered. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Um, and so, you know, there really doesn't appear to be a valid argument saying the Teamsters went beyond their rights under the NLRA. Like, a lot of legal experts are agreeing that this is kind of a fraudulent case. Um, you know, the strikers didn't intentionally destroy the cement the cement did that all on its own. You know, that's just what drying cement does if it is not intended to, and the workers went on strike. Um, and, you know, the workers are under no obligation to continue working after they go on strike unless uh, they deal with truly dangerous materials like nuclear waste. And quick-dry cement is not that. It's, it's a very safe product. Um, and, it, you know, it kind of seems like anyone who argues that they are obligated to keep working after negotiations break down you know, must not be familiar with the concept of what a strike is. Um, and in fact, actually, the NLRA recognizes that when workers do strike, economic harm to the employer may occur and, you know, is actually kind of the whole point of it. Um, now, you know, Glacier's lawyer named Noel Francisco, who unsurprisingly is the former Solicitor General for President Donald Trump, uh, argued that the Teamsters intentionally filled up their trucks and drove them away, putting Glacier in an untenable position. You know, he actually he actually began his, his arguments in front of the Supreme Court by ridiculously comparing the spoilage of a partial day's worth of concrete with uh, federal security guards leaving their posts in the middle of a terrorist threat um, or a ferry boat crew abandoning ship in the middle of a river uh, and steel workers walking out in the middle of a molten iron pour 
risking extensive damage in, uh, to the factory and to equipment. Um, and in those such, such situations, employer lawsuits would be allowed under the NLRA. Um, and so, you know, the, the lawyer, Francisco, argues that that should be the exact same situation that that happened with the workers, you know, leaving the concrete, spinning in the, in the trucks. Um, now, of course, these analogies wouldn't fly even on the SAT, and so they certainly should have no business being taken seriously by the Supreme Court. But, you know, unfortunately, the Supreme Court has accepted this case, and they are hearing arguments on it. So it is, these ridiculous comparisons are actually being taken seriously by the highest court in the land. Um, and, you know, despite what the company claims, uh, it's clear that the drivers didn't fill up their trucks with the intent of sabotage because, you know, they actually went out and performed their nor- their jobs as normal until the strike was called. So they filled up the trucks as the company asked them to do. They drove out, made their deliveries as they would normally do. And then when the negotiations broke down and, strike- and the strike was called, they brought the trucks back and left them running. Um, and, you know, management knew, or at least they should have known, that a strike was possible were negotiations to break down. Like, they were the ones negotiating. They knew that things could break down that day and a strike was imminent. Um, Now, you know, Glacier, the management, could have decided not to ask drivers to fill up the trucks on that day that a strike was imminent, but instead they decided that, you know, to work their employees until the very moment that they walked out. So really, this is kind of on them, you know. And, you know, moreover, the striking workers did bring the trucks back to the lot and kept them running with the express purpose of preventing the cement from solidifying. Um, you know, it's not their fault that management didn't have the skills to save their precious property. And really, you know, perhaps next time managers of a quick drying cement company should engage in union negotiations with more urgency, you know, in case something like this were to happen. Their quick drying product were to quickly dry and they had no idea how to decant it. Um, it's actually kind of reminds me of a couple, it was like last year, the year before, when John Deere workers, um, who, you know, the John Deere's non-union management attempted to fill in for the striking factory workers, and then immediately on day one, one of the managers crashed one of their large factory tractors into, a, you know, a big beam and caused a bunch of structural damage, and they had to shut down the factory for a few days. And that actually ended up bringing management to the table to negotiate a lot faster. But it is, it's just a similarly hilarious situation where the people who are employed to oversee the workers have no idea how to do the workers' jobs. And it becomes very apparent when the workers go on strike and how important they are. Um, you know, yeah, despite the clear lack of standing for the argument that's being made by the company, Glacier is unfortunately almost certainly, you know, going to win this case in front of the Supreme Court. And that's really, you know, based simply on the ideological breakdown of the Supreme Court justices, every labor case uh, in front of this court starts out automatically six to three in favor of management. Um, and, you know, it would be a genuine surprise if any of the justices handpicked by the Federalist Society to enact corporate, you know, pro-corporate conservative policy were, were ever swayed to bite the hand that feeds them, you know. Um, and actually... Did a little research, and in fact, since John Roberts became Chief Justice in 2005, the Supreme Court has been the place that labor rights go to die. Uh, During his tenure, the court has issued a string of anti-employee decisions, taking particular glee in union busting, cases that that strengthen union busting activities. Um, So basically, like, if you're a worker or a union whose case ends up before his court, 
you've already lost. The only question is how much collateral damage the court will do to organize labor and route to a ruling in favor of corporations and the paymasters. Um, so really, you know, it, it shouldn't, it should surprise no one uh, that the conservative justices, especially Roberts himself, have taken the side of management in this particular case. In fact, at uh, oral arguments, Justice Roberts repeatedly asked lawyers for the Teamsters why the law should protect their, you know, in quote, intentional destruction of property. Uh, he didn't accept settled arguments that spoilage of goods is often an outcome of strikes and that spoilage has not been enough to get workers accused of intentional destruction of property in the past. Uh, you know, there is precedent for this not being a situation that should warrant the, the company to be able to sue the workers. And, you know, this is no different than a hundred other cases that have been brought in front of the Supreme Court. Um, so it is settled law for the most part. And so this court is, you know, taking kind of a, a quick right turn on, on this situation and being rather activist, which is unfortunately kind of what the Trump administration set them up to do. Um, you know, putting such incredibly right-wing ideological judges on the court. So, you know, for their part, the liberal justices, uh, the, the few that there are on the court, did their part to fight the good fight. Uh, Justice Sotomayor challenged Glacier's lawyer by asking, quote, are you saying you can only go on strike at the end of the day? And uh, Justice Elena Kagan said that the board, being the NLRB, had handled thousands of these cases and, quote, can fit a case like this into a broader map of strike conduct and what's protected and what's not. So, you know, they are proving that, like, this precedent is being has been set and should be upheld. Uh, but unfortunately, just the numbers-wise, it is likely not to go in their favor. Uh, and the court is expected to hand down its decision by the end of June 2023. Uh, and just quickly here, before we continue with this discussion, we'd like to uh, welcome you if you're just tuning in. This is Labor Radio, and we are discussing a court that uh, a, a case that is at the Supreme Court right now that, if upheld by the Supreme Court, could severely undermine workers' and unions' right to strike. Um, so, yeah, once again, thank you so much for joining us on Labor Radio. Yeah, and, um, you know, we were just mentioning that it looks like, obviously, the, the court is taking a right turn on a lot of this settled law. Um, and, you know, while they're acknowledging that there is a distinction between causing economic harm and intentional property destruction, uh, Chief John Roberts, you know, mentioned that the, there is a difference between milk spoiling and killing the cow. Um, however, it, like you mentioned, it does look like it's headed towards a, a big win for management and kind of uh, a gigantic president set on top of law um, that will that will hurt unions' ability to to strike. Um, for their part, uh, the Biden administration has urged the justices to reverse the lower court decision, meaning that they are siding with Glacier Northwest. However, they are providing guidance or suggestion that they do not want to unilaterally uh, you know, have perishable goods left by a worker mean that, uh, you know, that's their economic burden to bear. Um, and so I think, you know, what's going to come out of this ideally from a Biden administration point of view is kind of more specific distinction between, you know, what is, you know, milk spoiling and killing the cow, <laughs> which again, we're kind of, we're, we're, we're getting into, um, semantics at this point. Um, I, for me personally, I think it's very important that the drivers drove the trucks back to the lot yeah. or the parking area and specifically left them running yeah. as to not spoil. Um, you know, I, 
I think if that weren't the case, I, I think I could follow the Biden logic there a lot right. more closely. Um, you know, and obviously, right, without the workers, they were unable to, you know, get the concrete into longer term storage. You know, we've entered concrete um, <laughs> intellectual knowledge here, which you know, Mike and I both don't have and are frankly unqualified to talk about. Um, and I do think it's important to remember as well that obviously this Supreme Court precedent would just allow more of these cases to make it to the state level. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that every worker would then from now on lose in cases in which perishable goods were ruined as a part of, um, you know, strike activities. So right. I think that, you know. Yeah, it would just allow like on a, essentially like a case by case basis that companies could sue the striking workers for lost yes. spoilage, but then that would open up a broader uh, understanding of what spoilage means. And, you know, as I think the example you're using, like, you know, if you allow, if you're someone who stocks shelves and you allow the milk to spoil, like, are you then liable for the cost of that? It's, it's pretty ridiculous. And, you know, unfortunately it is something that could really undermine just the larger ability of any type of worker to strike because if the interpretation of this is like, well, anything that you work with could be destroyed if you aren't attending to it as a worker, then that means that anytime someone goes on strike, the company can find a way to weasel in and, and, and sue you for that, sue the workers for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, as, as you pointed out, like, I don't, <laughs> we don't know exactly what it is, uh, how, how, how cement that is in a truck and spinning, how that's extricated from that truck yes. safely and, and, and to save the product. Like, I would assume it's all just poured, but there must be a way to do that. I imagine that it's a process that is time intensive and the workers were like told, hey, you're on strike now, so you know, do what you can yeah. to save that product. And, but, and, yeah. and you know, we've talked about it a ton of times on the show, the right to strike is mm -hmm. protected under federal law. Yeah. And the people who wrote that law clearly understood there would be economic harm and damage from yeah. striking. Um, and you know, we're obviously not gonna continue to quote Supreme Court justices all night tonight, <laughs> but you know, it was made very clear by several of the justices questioning the Glacier representatives and lawyers that, um, you know, when the people who wrote the law in Congress obviously understood that that would be the case. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it'll be very interesting to see kind of what happens going forward. Yeah. I mean, like that is, what is the point of a strike if not to inflict economic hardship onto the company so as to bring them to meet your demands? Yeah. And, and I might point. talk about it in a more positive manner, like leveraging the power, yes. right, of yes. the worker as opposed to going right to the damage. You know, obviously, if you can get to where you want to go without damaging and kind of just kind of the, the threat of the power and things like that. But yeah, I mean, by protecting the economic harm, you're reducing the power of a, of a large group of people yeah. you know, without the capital. So um Obviously, you know, the folks know where we stand on that and we'll just have to kind of wait and see. Yeah. And honestly, like that, that brings up a pretty good point that like management, the people who are theoretically the most, you know, the highest paid and the ones who should be the best at the job, it, it proves like they can't do the job of, they, they weren't qualified to do the job of taking the cement out of the truck that the workers are therefore, you know, are the ones who know how to do it. Therefore, the workers are inherently valuable and the company should be willing to find a way to meet, you know, to meet them at the negotiating table at an even footing because they don't have anyone who can do that job currently employed when the workers are on strike. Yeah, and you know, obviously this is a very small scale situation. So uh, I think it's important to, to think about too all the ways that readjusting the settled law or, you know, quote unquote settled law 
can affect people, right? Because, you know, this is a small Northwest-based concrete transportation right. company and delivery company, right? If you extend this out to something like Amazon, right, and workers going on strike, and we've talked about it a lot of times, you know, gigantic amounts of perishable goods. Yeah. You know, we're talking concrete in the amount of $11,000. Um, so, again, I think it's important to remember, and I hope that the Supreme Court remembers, and I'm sure that they do, uh, the amount of precedent that could be set with this case. Yeah, and, you know, sadly... Like, I don't, I think the Supreme Court is very acutely aware of the precedent they're yes. setting and kind of maybe it's the whole point of how, why they're made up the way they are and why the Trump administration was so important to the conservative movement. And, you know, on top of that, like, unfortunately, I'm, I'm fairly certain that many people around the country will agree with Roberts's ideological analysis here that, you know, like that's because there really is a tendency of a large segment of the of the population of this country to identify with corporate bosses and in you know in any dispute with labor uh, is one of the most you know that, that's one of the most detestably consistent aspects of you know our American experiment here like we see it every time there's a you know, a major sports league strike or I, w- you know, I was just about to say I mean yeah. we did a whole show on it uh, a long time ago at this point but uh, you know typically uh, you know during strikes and things like this. The, the U.S. or the American population tends to side with owners um, very strangely, right? I think when yeah. you have these kind of more specific micro scenarios, people, you know, can humanize folks and do different things like that. But right. when you're zoomed out and it's very macro and you're talking about a sports team or something like this, yeah. a lot of times it's the owners, it's the people with capital that people can more easily empathize with because yeah. they understand uh, you know, they, they don't they don't have the bad work conditions. They just see, oh, well, you know, they, they lost concrete. You should pay them. Right. Which is so crazy considering like, yeah, I mean, you, you can see it with like the, the uh, Starbucks workers where it's like this is they are workers that most Americans deal with on a regular basis. And yet because of the dynamic, the power dynamic of like I'm the customer, you're the worker. They side with the management, they, you know, cut consumers sides of the management often because they see themselves as an extension of management demanding that these workers do something for them and when the workers aren't there they feel personally slighted i mean like it's really clear like we are a nation filled with you know temporarily embarrassed millionaires whose knee-jerk reaction is to take the side of the ultra wealthy so as to ensure conditions are favorable for them once they you know make their inevitable ascent into the plutocracy like that is just sort of the sad state of being an american and you see it in so many different situations you know people despite the fact that you know the difference between maybe you know the white collar worker and the blue collar worker is is you know 10% salary difference and the yeah. difference between that worker and then their boss is like a 300% difference well it's i still you know yeah i mean i guess i would say you know it's very admirable that that mentality and i think it's how america got here um, but also at the end of the day it um, it can be turned and twisted and used for kind of different purposes than kind of its original, uh, more positive intent. Yeah. We just need a little more solidarity with other Americans who are not the, you know, 0.001% of people who own everything. Um, you know, however, you know, the, even those inclined to reflexively side with management should consider that the NLRB, not the Supreme Court, is the institution that literally exists to adjudicate these kinds of disputes. Uh, you know, not only is it filled with labor law experts, uh, but those experts are able to make sure that federal law is applied reliably and consistently across all industries uh, in all parts of the country for every worker. Um, and, you know, putting 
these cases into state courts is uh, basically a move designed specifically to increase confusion and uh, conflict within the law, which ultimately will just hurt labor interests. Um, and while this decision in the Glacier case is not entirely a foregone conclusion, many legal experts believe that the Roberts Court uh, has already erred badly simply by accepting the case itself. Uh, there was no need to do so since the Washington State Supreme Court had already decided unanimously to kick the case back to the NLRB, which is precisely what it was supposed to do uh, under the precedent set in 1957 by the Supreme Court itself in a decision that states when a labor dispute involves a matter that is, you know, quote, arguably protected by the NLRA, the case must be heard by the NLRB. Um, and, you know, furthermore, there was no split in this, the, the, the circuit courts in their, the decision that they made on the appeals. So there was no reason that the Supreme Court should have accepted this case when it was brought to them. It should not have ever gotten to that point in the first place. And, you know, really, it just kind of hammers home the idea that, like, this is part of a larger ideological project. Um, you know, it really is. It's part of the larger conservative anti-worker movement um, that we see in so many other cases, you know, like you saw years ago in the right to work case, you know, all these fraudulent cases, uh, you know, that are brought forward and then accepted by the by the Supreme Court in order to set a new precedent to undermine law that, you know, has been standard law for a long time, specifically often to undermine working people. Um, you know, if if Glacier wins, you know, all management has to, you know, all management has to do uh, is to allege that striking workers, you know, intentionally, quote, intentionally destroyed property, and then even if management is clearly wrong, labor unions are forced to fight the company in expensive litigation in state court instead of moving on to the institutional experts at the NLRB. And this, yeah, this case is clearly a part of a general conservative fight against the administrative state, and it's also an attempt to further drain labor unions of time, resources, time and resources so that every strike carries an additional threat of years-long litigation, even after the initial dispute is resolved. You know, even if a modified uh, win uh, for management, even if there's a modified win for management, that will significantly have reproductions, uh, repercussions, sorry, uh, for the ability of workers to strike. Uh, because, you know, what good is a, uh, a right to use, you know, a right to, uh, what, what good is there to use a right if the cost of it is going to make you pay more legal fees than whatever benefit you get back from it? Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, we, we, we will keep following this, but unfortunately it does seem like basically the Roberts Court will probably side with Glacier Management, and this will lead to an ex a very serious blow to the right to strike in this country. Um, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, we will update you as this case is, uh, you know, moves forward. But thank you so much for joining us on Labor Radio. We will be back with you next month. Uh, again, I have been Michael Cathcart. And I'm Ellie Gilland. Have a wonderful rest of your day.
listening to KBU Community Radio 90.7 FM. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. Baby. 